Hello, and welcome to a new episode of the Software Crafts Podcast. I'm your host, João, and today with me I have Aviv. Aviv is a tech executive consultant and the author of the book, The Tech Executive Operating System. Welcome, Aviv, and thanks for your time to be with us. Hi, and thank you for having me. No problem. So, uh, the, the heuristic today, I think that is very targeted to executives, and uh, actually it's a, it's a pattern, as we were discussing on off, and the pattern is dynamic strategy. So what is your opinion and experiences uh, with this pattern? Yeah, well, you know, I, I see this and I take this immediately to what I see in many, many organizations. And that is this sort of strategy, the way you have to implement your strategy and the fact that it has to be, you know, alive and not something that you have in this huge binder that you decide two years in advance and just stick to it uh, applies, you know, not just to your cloud native transformations, but across entire organizations. And uh, I've been helping my clients with uh, a way of doing strategy called sentient strategy. And that is completely stemming from the notion that we can no longer, especially you know, now COVID, no one knows where the future is going. Uh, you cannot assume that you can have a five-year plan and stick to it. We have to revise our strategy on a yearly basis or even more often. And I think that's exactly the kind of uh, mindset that we need as executives and leaders in tech. Indeed. And um, you start talking about the, the, the shift, right? Uh, rather than have the five years or two years plan, uh, shorter cycles. Uh, from where you stand, uh, since you are a coach and consultant on that area, do you see in the last years uh, a shift on the approaches of executives? I think that what I'm seeing is, especially with CTOs, it's become sort of a wildcard role where many people essentially decide what is the most impact that they can have on the company, and the title doesn't necessarily mean a lot. I see a lot of CTOs who rarely touch tech, and I see CTOs are massively involved in the architecture or the innovation, so it really depends on you know, what the specific person in that specific role wants to do, can do, and what the company needs. And I am seeing the best results coming from those executives, CTOs, VPs of engineering, and whatever, who position themselves to have the most impact, who don't see themselves as, you know, solely responsible for road delivery of the roadmap, but try and take on more responsibility, which is my passion. Yeah, uh, indeed, I can see. So you trigger me there with um, the the role of the CTO being vague, depends on the organization, right? Uh, people more hands-on and more architecture, people more, you know, strategy thinking. Do you think that the size of an organization plays a role there? Uh, let's say that uh, a startup with 10 people uh, with an engineering department or a, a medium size with a 200 plays an impact on the role of CTO? Yeah, of course. I mean, I see way too many startups with, as you said, 10 employees, let's say six engineers, and they already have a CTO and a VP and sometimes even a team lead. And I, I call that premature organization. You're having way too many levels of management and hierarchy before you actually require that. And you're just making things 
more and more complicated than they should be. You know, just like using sophisticated design patterns unnecessarily in your code just because you think it makes you feel smarter. Um, so that sort of stuff. I do think that as companies grow and as you have more things going on and more people involved, it does make sense to split the different roles, to have one person responsible, for example, on the architecture, one about the evangelism and what I call the outward facing executive. Consider, for example, if you're a company that has a, an API or an SDK and you are working with engineers, you need someone technical that is talking to your potential clients, partnerships, and so forth. And of course, you need the person who's responsible for making the actual software, right? The VP of engineering usually is not responsible for the actual engineering, but for the engineers. It's a VP responsible of people and delivery. So as you grow, it does make sense to have more of these and even several. But when you're small, I usually think that we tend to create the extra roles just because of ego problems and not because that's the right thing for the company. Definitely, definitely. So uh, um, I can see from your framework, right, the, 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 what you present as the, the four, as you talk, uh, let's call responsibilities, right? Architecture, people, evangelism, and leadership. Yeah. Uh, do you see patterns when organizations grow uh, to split these? Or even when uh, we have organizations, let's say, with 100 or 200 engineers, some organizations still adopt uh, uh, merges between these roles? Or, or what is the line of thinking there? Yeah, first of all, I named these specifically to help the people I work with, you know, even realize it. The, po the power of patterns, like the one we started discussing, uh, this discussion from, is that they enable us to speak more clearly and see things in the same light. Because for one person, the title of CTO means one thing, and for the other, it means a completely different thing. So I'm trying to use these names for these responsibilities and roles, architecture, people, evangelism, leadership, so that it would help us, first of all, realize what are the different roles of tech leadership in the company. And then if you have peers or colleagues that you need to be talking to about to decide who does what, this enables you to have a language for both of you to use. And sometimes people have this sort of, you know, there's no clear cut line. I do architecture and you do some architecture. I see a lot of times where you have a CTO and sometimes a chief executive, a chief architect, sorry, or a VP of architecture, and they have a lot of back and forth. There's no one person who has the final say. And sometimes it's very clear cut because that's what works best for those two people in those roles. So again, I am always against too much dogma and I always think that we need to be pragmatic and tailor whatever structure you have to the talent you have and to the best outcome for the company. But as you grow, usually making those sort of uh, splitting so that you have someone who's responsible to talking to people outward facing usually is better. But again, I'm against doing that prematurely. Yep, I can see uh, having too much overhead, right? Then uh, 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 it just grows. Um, and getting back to the heuristic, the dynamic strategy, we talk about uh, executives and, and picking up this uh, uh, strategy and execute. I would like to pick your brain on 
how executives or effective ways of executives getting feedback for this strategy, right? Sometimes strategy looks great on paper, even if the, the cycle is a one-year cycle. Mm-hmm. But how they know that this strategy is having the intended outcome rather than just thinking about outputs? How are the, the yeah. mechanisms that you see? That's extremely hard, of course. And I think that for everyone that comes from a techie background, where we always talk about feedback loops, we want to see the results fast, we want to run the tests every time you hit command S, that sort of stuff. How do we get the same kind of feedback in these more and more amorphous roles? And first of all, when you're talking about strategy, I always say that you don't need a tech strategy. You need a strategy for the entire company and you should be part of that. And your strategy should have different parts to it but you don't have solely tech strategy, but from that bigger strategy that you should, as a CTO, as a VP of engineering, should take part in forming that, you then should get your specific objectives for your team. And if you do that and you start the process correctly, so you start from the real business strategy, hopefully you get actual objectives, actual business goals that you want to be working on, like, You know, in SaaS companies, it's often talking about stuff like churn or conversion rates and that sort of stuff. And those are things that your team can actually track, your squads or pods or whatever you want to call it, your task forces can actually start and see that they are moving the actual business needle. They're not just delivering, you know, whatever there's on the JIRA board. They're actually moving the needle and they can see something and hopefully you can see results not in a year, but in cycles of a quarter and sometimes even shorter. So that's one part of it. If you actually get those sorts of objectives and goals that have a real definition of their metric that you can measure and see. But sometimes that's not the case. For example, when I'm working with startups, who haven't reached product market fit, they might be iterating on features that they don't really know if they're going to work. And in those scenarios, you basically want to see that you have a positive trend. So if we, I I call this uh, the meta review, let's say once a quarter or two months or whatever, we don't do a retrospective for the actual development of the features, but you want to have your engineers and people from the business side and product sit down and review what has been accomplished in the past two months and what have we learned from it. It's fine if we didn't see that people are now you know, throwing cash at us, but have we learned and why do we believe that we are now better so that the next quarter will be better? So you want to see that you have this positive trend. Without that, you're working in a vacuum and you, especially your engineers are going to feel frustrated because if there's something that really hurts your people's autonomy and agency is not seeing how can we actually affect what's going on. And if you feel like you're coding into the void, people become frustrated and get, get burnt out even if they're not working especially hard. Well, um, I can relate to that. Uh, I also saw that, those patterns, right? And uh, it's very interesting how you explain your techniques, right? To help in different contexts, right? A established company that uh, wants to take a bigger pull off the market or even a startup that is creating a market, right? We don't know if that market will be created or not, uh, but that mm-hmm. is part of innovation. 
But my question, and now I'm going to try to tease you, what do you think about business and IT alignment? Oh, well, what I think is that there's no such thing, right? There's no alignment because IT, uh, well, how can I put it without offending anyone? The reason we have IT is because we want some business results. No CEO sits down and thinks to herself, you know, I feel like having some extra code written in my company because it makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. We have those very, very pricey engineers and, you know, either have very nice office space or whatever you have to do nowadays. And we have this huge part of the budget go into R&D because we the business wants to see some specific results being achieved. So there's no alignment as in IT wants one thing and the business wants another thing and we need to see where we meet. IT has to, you know, and I get that as an engineer, I've been coding since I was nine. I love doing, you know, some research, working on the new shiny package I saw in Hacker News. But sometimes you have to understand that in the grand scheme of things, your purpose isn't to be obsessed about the shiniest tech, but to achieve business results. That doesn't mean that we don't need to care about what we're doing. This is, you know, this software is about craftsmanship. And I believe that we need to care very much. But the pinnacle of great engineering is actually achieving those results and not having the shiniest code. And I've heard people like Kent Beck say, say that, and I agree completely. So you, this is exactly why I'm saying you don't need to have a tech strategy. You start from what the business needs and then you work around that. Yep. Uh, so you were very diplomatic, right? So, uh, uh, and that <laughs> was on purpose. Uh, I also get triggered when people, oh, we need to align business and IT. I really like to think in terms of, are you a digital company? Uh, what are the products or services that you are delivering? Do they just deliver with software, right? So... Uh, go from there <laughs> and um, yeah. it's interesting quoting Kentweck right because uh, uh, he's a very interesting engineer right he, he very connected to the technical patterns and uh, everything with XP but with a, a focus on, on, on business and my question mm -hmm. is I don't know if you did formal education I did and uh, when we go to college computer science type of uh, degrees we are very focused on the normalization forms of the database and how to improve the performance that, oh, by the way, a compiler internally works like that. Well, when we go working, I never need to build a compiler. Of course, I don't work with Microsoft or, or, or the, the folks at Java, right? <laughs> Do you think that even the formal education for uh, software engineers and uh, people that create software should include a more business-focused, outward-thinking component or the formal yeah. education is just okay at these days and we need to find a different solution there no i think first of all the formal education by itself i i have a cs degree and i think that it gives you a lot of very very valuable tools eventually because as you said i never had to write a compiler but i did have one time where as one client we were um writing a tool, a lecture to parse some of the HashiCorp uh, markup for, you know, Terraform files and stuff like that. So even having some vague understanding of wh what do I need to Google because I had that course 10 years ago was helpful. So there is some value in that, but when it comes to your day-to-day, -day, 
I think that knowing another programming language or knowing how to calculate exactly the complexity of a, an algorithm once every two years when you have to actually think about that is less valuable than understanding, for example, what do product people do? What a business is? How does it work? But I think that formal education can do a small part in that. We can talk about the generic business stuff, have, you know, business one-on-one or something like that to help people. But it is the role of the company to ensure that their people, not just the engineers, but especially the engineers, have what I call product mastery. We have tech mastery. We understand our tools very good. I'm hoping at least. But you need to have product mastery. And by product, I mean the entire business part of your company. How the product works, what problems is it solving, who are your customers, who are your competitors, who is, what is your market, that sort of stuff. Because with that, when you sit down and you, know, you look at the roadmap, you have this big feature you're going to work on. If you have product mastery, you can ask the right questions and say, you know, must we implement that part right now or can we you know, just delay that? Because I think the most value is in here and let's deliver a first version three weeks earlier with, sorry, without that extra part. Or if you don't have that, if you don't have product mastery, what happens is you become what I call, uh, you know, a soldier. You get a command and that command is your JIRA ticket. You open it, you see that you need to be doing ABC, you sit down, you code it, you create the pull request, you feel all warm inside, but you might have just spent two weeks coding something that will have no impact. And, you know, someone from product might not understand the extra cost that was involved in a simple sentence, at least that that's what they thought. So that sort of stuff can only be achieved by having product mastery. And that is specific to your company. So whatever you learn in college isn't going to be applied to each and every position. Indeed. So how about, because also we talk about uh, executives and uh, strategy and uh, organizational design. I want to run this idea by you. How about companies creating programs, you know, onboarding programs that address these specific ones, right? Because every context is different. If you are a SaaS company or if you are a bank or if you are whatever, how about these specific you know, onboarding programs that touch different areas, right? If you are an engineer, maybe you master your, your tools and uh, tech. How about product? If you are from product, you need a bit to understand tech to see what are the trade-offs. Did you saw that in practice or this is just a wild idea that I'm pitching? No, actually, this is something that I'm helping companies do more of, and that is the onboarding, which has this product one-on-one part, and not just, again, for the engineers, but for pretty much everyone in the company, because I'm guessing you've had in the past worked with someone in the company that didn't really understand the business eventually, and so you had to explain things. I've worked with salespeople who didn't actually understand the entire, you know, the, the way the product works, they just had their slides and that made it so that they were saying things that are nonsense sometimes. And I've worked with engineers who didn't understand and therefore were creating useless parts of a feature, you know, handling some edge case that's never going to happen because, you know, you might have, if you're looking at your code, you might have an if statement because, and you feel like I need to have an else here. But if you understand the scope of the business, 
you can see that while it is possible in theory, it is not possible, you know, in practice, that sort of stuff. So I'm helping companies create these product mastery onboarding. So you learn about your tech, you learn about the stack if you come to engineering, but you also have this part of let's understand the business. Let's have someone show us what are the marketing materials. Let's do, you know, if you have customer success, let's do a shadowing session where you sit with them and you see the types of requests they are getting from clients. I just, two weeks ago, I was talking to a CTO who told me that his engineers have stopped watching Netflix and they are watching recordings of the sales session. The company is using something, I think, like Gong.io, if you've heard of it, which is an AI tool that records uh, sales conversations and, and then gives you reports. And the engineers started listening to that because they really, really valued getting the actual connections to the people, to the customers, and seeing what they are saying, what features are they interested at. That's the sort of thing that really helps you in your onboarding. And actually, not just onboarding, you have to maintain it because, you know, a startup never looks the same a year later. So you have to make sure to redo it every once in a while. Uh, definitely, definitely, because uh, I was triggered by these a few years back. I was talking with a former chief architect of UPS, and he told me the story how it came to be the UPS trucks, right? That they are brown, so you don't see them in the cities if you have greens and stuff like that. But they are very special, right? Because the, the delivery person doesn't need to go to the outside. They can walk in. And that story was mm -hmm. that the R&D lab, they had this challenge. What they did was send the engineers to with the delivery people and ask them, what are your pain now? And they came with the solution. Okay, no one asked them, make the truck like that. They came with these, which led me to think, because I tried this with uh, uh, my teams uh, back in the day when I was team lead, send new engineers towards the users of our products because they were internal users and, 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 and literally shadowing and see what happens. That is one of the best experiences that led, okay, people use the, the, the product on this way, they are facing these challenges, perhaps we can optimize here or there. And also an advantage that I see especially with onboarding, if you don't come from the same industry, that happens on tech, right? We jump between different industries. You are not mm -hmm. biased to the same solutions. So you are able to think, did you think about this bottleneck and that constraint and that if you work on that product for two years, you are already blind. It's normal how our brain works. That works pretty well, right? Uh, yeah. So also, I think that there are starting popping up more and more of these experiences across different companies, which is pretty interesting. And um, talking about your work, uh, so you talk about uh, uh, the, the different qualities or phases, I don't know how, how to put it, but also you talk about uh, executive uh, tool set, right? Uh, what an executive mm -hmm. uh, should have. And connecting this to, 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 to strategy, what are the, the, the important tools on the tool set to... to, to shape and execute a strategy? Well, it's, you know, as everything in engineering gets complicated and it depends on your specific situation. But when I'm talking about the tool set, these are a bunch of things that you need to possess in order to maximize your success chances. Like, for example, starting with very basic tactics like controlling your time better. I'm seeing people all over the industry becoming enslaved to the calendar. And we need to do some 
extra proactive steps to make sure that we have our you know maker time uh, along with the other roles we have so even if you're a manager and you feel like you have to be there for your team you have a, a bunch of meetings you are still responsible to do some thinking right not everything happens in your meetings and you should make the time to think you need to take control of your time you need to be very good in managing up even if you're a director or a team lead and especially if you're an executive you have to understand exactly how to communicate with your manager be it the ceo or the vp of engineering or whoever it is to ensure that you are in alignment you have great expectation setting that sort of stuff so uh, in the book i mention a bunch of these tool sets but what I like even more is I also mentioned in the tool set approaches, which are, you know, mindset that you need to possess. And a lot of them I see in my, in my experience are hard for people from a tech background sometimes to, to, to adopt, but they are critical. So one of them, which I think is very, very important, especially when you're forming a strategy and when you're introducing a strategy to your team is what I call the executive mindset. And that is, the exact opposite of think about some very senior engineer that you've worked with. We tend to be very cynical and very pessimistic because we know that deadlines are missed. We know that whatever we, we have on the roadmap right now is going to be, uh, we're going to have some scope creep uh, within two weeks, all sorts of stuff. Those experienced engineering people tend to be, again, very pessimistic and they tend to be very cynical. And that tends to make, the, make our thinking not enough, you know, innovative and optimistic and that sort of stuff. And your role as an executive and as a leader is to shine a ray of optimism and energy and can do. I'm not saying that you should be committing to you know, crazy, insane deadlines that no one can meet. But you should be a force that says, you know, let's assume that we can do it and then try. My, my favorite example is if I show you a, you know, a picture of a chessboard with a given position and just hand it to you, you might look at it, think for 10 seconds and say, I don't know what's the best move. But if I give you the same chess set and I tell you why to move made in two, you're going to spend two minutes and you're going to find the maiden too, because I told you that it is possible. I told you that there's a solution. And just by having someone telling you, you know, we can do it. Now let's find a way to do it. That is helpful. I don't know why. That's the way we're wired. And it helps people actually think harder and find a way to do stuff. So I really believe that, for example, this executive mindset is critical for creating a team that always keeps, you know, pushing its bar higher. Definitely it is, uh, and it's very interesting how you pose on the different personality traits based on uh, roles that people are. And as a follow-up, um, when you we have engineering departments or, or product departments, as you want to call it, um, there are communities of practice because there are more than one people on that role and people learn from each other and go. But when we go to executive level, there is only one per company. What is the best way that you see or experience for people to, to uh, 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 keep growing on their careers and also, you know, sharing experiences? What are the, the, the supporting structures that you witness or even that you help companies to implement for, for executives and VPs, these type of roles? 
Yeah. So first of all, as companies grow, they tend to have several executives. For example, the CTO role and the VP of engineering. Some companies have a VP of architecture or a chief architect who is also a, an executive. And I also have worked with several companies where once they grew enough, they grew so that they now have several VPs of engineering because, you know, one VP managing 200 engineers is often too much, that sort of stuff. So if you go to one of these scale-up companies that keep growing, you eventually get more and more opportunities. Um, but I am also not going to lie, and I will say that I see that most of the very, very, uh, you know, self-propelling people, those who really want to advance fast, tend to make the switch by by actually switching jobs to where they have an opportunity to go to an earlier stage startup and then grow from there. That is probably the fastest way, though I won't say that it is always the best way. It really depends on the person, on the opportunity. Um, but I am saying um, I am seeing this happening. So either there are those who stick to a single place and grow with it, and then there are those who you know, jump ship every three years. And I think that both are fine, but you need to think for yourself what makes you feel better and what works for your learning. Some people really enjoy the reset, like you said earlier, uh, when you move an industry, when you switch from one area to another, you actually have a bunch of insights. And some people just really enjoy having a deeper and deeper knowledge in one specific area. So whatever works for you. I have friends who have now been working in the fourth storage startup. And, you know, they understand everything about storage. I, I worked at IBM for a year and then I ran away because storage was a nightmare for me. Uh, but they really enjoy it. And they are now, you know, world-class people when it comes to that uh, area. So it really depends on whatever works for you, I think. Definitely, and uh, great advice. Thanks. Uh, free consultancy here, uh, we can see, which helps. Uh, and with this, we are getting towards the end of the episode, right? So uh, we're going to get uh, always the same question towards the end. Uh, people got used to it. And what are the resources that you recommend for people to uh, 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 read more in depth about the topics that we discuss? Yeah, so first of all, I'll mention my book that you talked about in the beginning, The Tech Executive Operating System, which is out just a couple of weeks ago. And I think that it is very, very helpful if you're interested about the stuff we talked about. But I personally also get a lot from being part of different communities online, not just reading articles and reading books, which I do a lot of, but also seeing, you know, what are people asking? What are other people answering? I really, really enjoy that. And I am part of a bunch of Slacks and communities online. For example, two I'm really enjoying lately are the RANDS, R-A-N-D-S, uh, Leadership Slack, and there's the Dev Interrupted Discord. Both of them, I think, are incredible. You get a bunch of very nice discussions going on daily. So I would recommend your listeners to check them out. Thanks. Uh, I will make sure that uh, those resources are on the description of the episode so uh, people can follow up. Also your uh, social media one so people can reach out to you and uh, discuss any of these topics. I think that uh, this is the magic, the positive impact of social media. Let's say it like that. Uh, <laughs> to have these, 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 these conversations. And with this, we got to the end. Uh, once again, I want to thank you for your time to be with us today. 
Thank you. I had a lot of fun, and this was one of the most interesting interviews I've had. So thank you. Thanks for your kind words. You can follow us on Twitter at Podcast. Visit our website, softwarecraftspodcast.com, or follow our page on LinkedIn. Hope to see you next week. Thank you.